Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 49 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 19th of December. And Leon, what have we got on the session for this week? Well, we're having a chat with uh, Nicholas Smedley. He's the Managing Director of Stellar Properties. He's going to be talking to us all about Australia's property market, which is going to be fascinating, and it's booming. And uh, then we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis all about the mid-year budget statement that Joe Hockey came out, and Kakoulis has got a very dim view about it. That's right. He says there's not a lot of change and not a lot that's good. And, of course, we update on all the news. But first of all, let's have a chat with Nicholas Smedley. Nicholas Smedley, tell us about Stella. Uh, Stella is a uh, full-service uh, property development construction company that was started in 2006. Uh, now has a, a little over $600 million in developments uh, undergo. Uh, we have a construction arm property development arm, a sales arm, um, and a retirement arm. So we're, we encapsulate every aspect of property development. So how do you see the property develop, how do you see the property market here at the moment? I mean, it seems to be booming. Yes, def- um, the property market in Melbourne and across Australia at the moment is hot in many pockets, um, but it comes down to the fundamentals of the locations where we choose our developments. So we have very strict criteria of where we have our sites, um, and we find very, very strong demand here at the moment. Why is, that, why, is, why is that happening? Um, we're finding that people are still wanting to live. Um, they're not wanting to have their quarter acre block 40 minutes out of town. They're wanting to be within a, a 5 to 15 kilometre radius of the city, close to amenities, close to public transport and having a, you know, a cafe culture um, as opposed to living out in suburbs and having a backyard uh, an hour out of town. So people aren't prepared to sort of commute anymore? What we're finding with our product is uh, the people we're addressing, no, they're not wanting to commute. They're wanting to live in set locations um, with services. Uh, that, that's actually forcing up prices quite severely, isn't it? That's forcing up land prices in areas where development can go ahead, um, but it's not necessarily um, overheating the actual apartment price itself. We've found that maybe there's been a 5 or 10% price increase over the last 18, 24 months in our apartment end prices. That, that's not much. No, it's still steady growth, though. Uh, the apartment market will always go between 5 and 10%, whereas uh, um, houses in the suburbs have uh, been growing at a different rate. According to a survey that was in the Fin this morning, the ownership of uh, inner-city dwellings, if you like, is principally investors, uh, and a lot of them are foreign investors. Are you finding the same thing here? No, we have a slightly different product mix. Um, we have a larger... Um, apartment. Uh, we tend to do a two-bedroom, two-bathroom product that's 75 to 80 square metres, and we have a probably a 75 to 80% owner-occupier um, purchaser profile compared to with a, a lot of other developers are actually doing a, a smaller, tighter, more crown product, more suited to investor or foreign purchases. So we've, we've shied away from that and really trying to service a niche that we believe is underserved in the Melbourne market. Are there big trends now in the building of apartments? How are they different now from how they were, say, 10 years ago? Um, 10 years ago, that's two years before I started building myself, but we're, we're, I'm generally finding um, other developers um, are pushing to get maximum yield on a site, so as many units that they can per square metre or per site, whereas we've taken an approach of reducing that and giving more private open spaces, more internal living areas um, to really make them more homely um, and more appealing to uh, younger um, first, second and third home buyers. I've heard reports that a lot of, a lot of apartments now are sort of moving away from the idea of having garages and things like that. Is that, is that true? 
Um, I have seen uh, plans for developments where there is dispensation for no parking and there's uh, provisions that they can't get parking permits in the street, so they literally have to not have a car. They need to rely 100% on uh, public transport. We don't offer that product. We make sure that we are compliant with ResCode. We always, every apartment has a has a car space and every three-bedroom apartment has two car spaces. In, say, Little Collins and places like that I'm sure you're familiar with, you've got a lot of these very high-rise, minuscule apartments the future of those looking at the construction as well perhaps what's going to happen there i mean the student population will continue you couldn't house a family in one of those no um, they're obviously being built specifically for either an offshore investor market or exactly as you said student accommodation and obviously in the cbd um, and areas like that um, will support developments like that but um, concentrating in suburban areas, you know, those developments just would not get out of the ground. South Bank is doing a lot of development and the Melbourne City Council, the City Council itself, seems to be uh, promoting those areas. And then we're looking at Fisherman's Bend as possibly becoming. Are you interested in that sort of area? No, we, we tend to uh, steer clear of the CBD. Um, we, we leave that um, product type and size of development for uh, multinational and international developers. Uh, we're heavily focused on the suburban rings as of saying uh, five to five to fifteen kilometres around the CBD. So then you'd be looking at somewhere with very good public transport. Yes, yeah, very Camberwell good. Camberwell sort of area. A- any area with good public transport, good um, good rail, tram, bus network, but more specifically than that, strong cafe and um, uh, and business strips where these developments are. We really want to focus on a sort of a one kilometre radius of primary infrastructure. Being a train station, there needs to be a Woolworths, a Coles, you know, everything that um, one would want. Um, at their fingertips, but within walking distance, but there's obviously still the ability to drive if they needed to. How far ahead are you looking in terms of the changes in the city? Um, For example, I was talking to an engineer last week who is doing a business model on driverless cars in Melbourne. The idea of the driverless car, of course, is you don't own a car, you call it up the way you would Uber in, say, San Francisco. Yep. Is is this going to change things for what you're doing? Do you think? Um, I don't think with the in the next two to three years, which is our current development pipeline. Uh, no. Um, past that, yes. A- any new innovation or um, ways that potential purchasers interact with their dwelling, um, we'll have to adapt with and look into further. But at the moment, we're not exploring those options. Yeah, that'd be a good ten years ahead for yeah. for here. Your your uh, your market is principally families, I take it. Yeah, um, yeah, either downsizers or young families. Um, so we have uh, we try and have a very high proportion of three bedroom or larger um, units in our development sites. Um, really focused on downsizers and young families. And so, and that would be saying uh, Stonington and places like that. That would be low rise compared with the CBD. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the ring, sort of five to 15 kilometres um, outside the CBD, most of the developments, unless they're in specific neighbourhood areas, are um, around four storeys. Um, so I'd say that our sweet spot is, you know, 25 to 45 unit medium density developments, not high rise. And for the the owner-occupier, they would then be a pretty reasonable investment where, say, some of the things in the CBD, maybe you'd shy away from. Um, I, I would be pushing people to go for a... Uh, a medium density development rather than the amount of stock that will be coming on in the CBD. Why is medium density? Um, just number of people in the development, um, number of neighbours, um, amenities within the building and, and just um, concentration of development of where they're going to be. Um, we always find that our purchasers um, are looking for you know 25 to 35, upwards of 50 was really where they limit 
how many they want in a block. Um, anything over that, we find the sale wi sales window takes a lot longer. Um, there's a lot more questions from the potential purchasers. Their, their sweet spot um, in the areas we operate is just four stories, 25 to 50 units per site. So it's very much a lifestyle offering, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're wanting to still have um, a very livable apartment, but close to all the amenities um, of main strips. Your uh, your market is principally owner-occupiers? Yes, correct. Uh, do you have any interest from investors? Yeah, uh, we would have about uh, about 5% is uh, foreign um, purchases um, at a maximum, um, and then 15, 15 20%, give or take, um, of investors. We're finding that investors are becoming more attracted to our product because they can see the resale potential and capital appreciation of a larger apartment um, superior to just a, um, a small yield-driven um, apartment. And so, so you you would be so you expect to increase the number of investors for your company? Yeah, we're finding that the number of investor purchases is steadily growing each year. To some extent, uh, changing the the city, isn't it? People are downsizing; they're getting out of the the Temple Stowe pillared sort of mansion. Yes. And going for a lifestyle, you know, uh, maybe empty nesters doing that. Yeah, uh, we're definitely finding um, in some of our developments in Bentley or uh, or Carnegie where purchases are coming within a, a two or three kilometre radius of the site, and they've sold their primary residence, um, which may have been a you know a four bedroom freestanding house, and purchasing a three bedroom apartment um, and putting some cash in their pocket. A friend of mine who was a big fancier of chickens sold his property out in the Dandenongs. He's now living in Queensway. <laughs> very big life. You can't change. keep your chooks then. <laughs> no, no. But he's very happy. He reached a point in life where he felt like a move and he wanted the sort of lifestyle you're talking about. Yeah, no no gardening maintenance, no building maintenance, body corporate to look after all of that, um, centralised services and a, a very tight neighbourhood within the building. So you would see this niche very much as the growing niche of in the property sector? Yes, we definitely see this as um, our primary goal um, and we see this sector growing very, very strongly. Nicholas Smedley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Nicholas. Interesting that uh, Nicholas, the suburban thing, he's not interested in the central business district high-rises. No, no. He's, uh, he obviously sees the central area of Melbourne as the growth area. It's stable and the work is regular. But he's not getting into the uh, the very high-rise crammed student area. No, because that is where prices and costs are escalating. And, of course, you've got the, uh, the problem with the CFMEU as well, making things a lot harder. Absolutely. Okay, and now Stephen Kukoulis. Stephen Kukoulis, you've been running your eye over Joe Hockey's Maifo during the week. What's your view of it? Look, there are a couple of aspects. Um, and I think the criticism would be that Mr Hockey is either not doing anything to support growth and to get the unemployment rate back down. He's, in fact, forecasting the unemployment rate to increase further over the next two years to 6.5%, but nor is he really doing much to get the budget deficit um, lower and get it to surplus earlier. In fact, he's pushed back the budget surplus. So, in a sense, you could be given to, uh, and give some praise to Mr Hockey if, if he thought, well, I'm going to go really tough on the budget, I'm going to get that surplus quickly. And if that's the... Uh, if the Rate of economic growth is the cost of that, fair enough. Or the alternative, of course, is I'm going to go for growth. I'm going to bring forward infrastructure spending and um, uh, tinker with some of the tax treatments so I get the economy stronger so that unemployment rate actually falls, not rises. So he's sort of caught in the middle of not fixing the budget and not promoting growth. Where do you see it travelling? I mean, do you see it doing any good at all? 
Look, I, I think uh, the common theme that's doing um, the rounds of the pundits, if you like, is that they just need to take a complete and utter re- recasting of the budget. Um, the measures that have been in there have not been uh, all that successful in terms of raising revenue or reducing uh, the budget deficit, nor have they been promoting growth, but they've had the cost of being seen to be unfair uh, and they don't raise much money and they can't get the Senate on board. So I think you know, if it was me looking at how I would be reframing the budget, um, I have, of course, still the long-run objective of getting back towards the surplus. That's absolutely uh, imperative when the economy is strong, but also you'd be looking to do it fairly. And um, there's a lot of friendly advice coming from the likes of the OECD who are saying, well, hike the uh, GST. There's some, of course, I think the better option is to look at uh, tax expenditures, things like the tax breaks given to superannuation. They they raise a lot of money and they hit people who are probably not income constrained, so therefore you're not going to hurt GDP growth if you uh, if you target those um, high income earners and the high wealth in superannuation. So there are things that can be done. Uh, it's just a matter of having the political courage. And we know over the last, gosh, decade or so, that political courage is hard to find in Canberra. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that uh, the MIFO forecast budget deficits uh, over four years totaling $103 billion. That's up $47 billion since May. But there are some still some $25 billion in savings stuck in the Senate. And it does nothing. To, and the government is still determined to push those through the Senate. That shows no sign of abating. No, they're still determined to get their measures through, the uh, unemployment uh, measures. They've obviously tinkered just before that my FA came out with the university uh, cuts and funding changes and the Medicare co-payment and a few other things like that. But there's still, as you mentioned, a, a, a chunk of uh, measures that are worth a lot of money in the Senate. To get stuff through the Senate, you've got to compromise Howard did it with the GST introduction. Gillard did it with the carbon pricing. And in fact, you know, since since the Second World War, most governments have not had a majority in the Senate. And to get their measures through, they've had to give a little bit back. Um, and even with um, uh, the carbon tax repeal and a few other things, you know, uh, Abbott had to do that as well. Now, the question here is, what, what do you do? You, you know where the minor parties in the Senate are. You know what their biases and preferences are. It's worth having a cup of tea with them and uh, saying, well, if you get my measures through, we will give a little bit back in terms of some of your favoured projects. And if those projects are sort of neither here nor there in the scheme of uh, managing the economy, I think it's, it's the way that it's got to be. And, and that's just not for the current measures that are stuck in the Senate, but as we just touched on, any future measures that are going to be looked at in terms of the budget, get the minor parties on side early, work out the compromise that you've got to do, uh, got to give them, and your reforms will more or less go through. Hockey is saying more or less that 2015 will be a better year. Because, uh, you know, with the, with the dollar going down, and uh, do you see it being a better year? Yeah. No, I don't. I, I, hope, I hope Joe's right. I hope, I hope he's right. But, you know, even just in this very recent uh, last uh, 48, 72 hours, we've seen problems occurring in global markets which worry me. Now, each of them on their own are a concern, but when you push them all together, you do get a concern. Firstly, you've got uh, the problems in Russia. Now, I know that's a specific problem to Russia where they've hiked interest rates by almost 650 basis points, the rubles in free fall. You've got German government bond yields, 10-year yields falling to 0.6%. Japanese 10-year yields at 0.3%. These things don't happen in a normal economy. This is abnormal market pricing. And throw on top of that iron ore price, 
oil prices down to um, $55 a barrel. There's something going on in the world economy that just makes me very nervous about whether Australia is going to have the momentum to get back to that 3% growth rate that would see the unemployment rate top out at 65 Look, I hope Mr Hockey's right, but I hope something comes along, but I can't see where the driver of that growth is. I can't see it being in household spending, not housing construction, certainly not CapEx, uh, and then the global environment doesn't look too good either. So um, we, we need a circuit breaker, and whether that's the RBA changing its tune and cutting rates early in the new year, or whether it's the government changing its tune on, on fiscal policy and doing something different in the budget, we just have to wait and see. But I'm a bit more um, uh, cautious than Mr Hockey. Uh, Westpac uh, Melbourne Institute today came out and said uh, forecast growth rate of 2.7%. Uh, can you see it heading that way? Look, um, the, there's... Real GDP will probably be okay because the volume of exports of iron ore and coal is still quite strong. I think if we sort of drill down from something like two and a half or two or three quarters for GDP and where is that growth coming from, if you look at just domestic demand, which is basically the economy minus exports, uh, you've actually got a figure that's near a one to one and a quarter percent. So the domestic economy is really not got that momentum that's, that's allowing growth to create the jobs that we need to get that unemployment rate back down. So I think the focus, rather than perhaps on bottom line GDP, as important as that is, of course, um, is really on the domestic economy. You've got to remember that the iron ore and coal exports don't employ a lot of people. That's the problem, that while we look at GDP and say, well, it's not too bad, um, where the growth is coming from is not labour intensive. We need it. Uh, the growth to be in consumer spending, things like retail, which employs a lot of people, things like construction, that employs a lot of people, and they're the sort of dynamics that we need to get that growth rate, not just to three, but hopefully three and a quarter or three and a half percent. The, one, one of the issues with MoFo was, I mean, I was very struck that there were no programs for growth in there. I mean, Joe Hockey wasn't talking about economic growth at all. No, the focus was all on deficit uh, minim- minimisation for the budget deficit and, uh, and, and you know, maybe rightly so hitting the Senate on the head for, for not uh, passing his measures. That's, that's fine. That's politics. My approach, or a, a, a good approach to economic uh, policy, is that when the economy and your economic circumstances change, you change policy. That's why interest rates change more often than not. You know, they've gone between 7% five years ago to 2.5% now and lots of rates in between. When things change, the RBA changes its interest rate policy. The same could be and should be said for the budget. When you're confronting different circumstances, you change budget policy. So when your economy is booming, like it was up until the GFC, up until about 2007, 2008, uh, when the economy was doing really well, okay, lock in some of those surpluses, put the money away, and that was prudent. Maybe they should have done more, of course, but at least it was not, it was not bad policy. When the economy is weak, you run a deficit. Nothing wrong with that. That's actually prudent policy. But when circumstances change, the economy now is undoubtedly weaker than uh, a year ago or even six months ago when uh, the May budget was framed. The world economy is weaker. Commodity prices are about half of what they were a little while ago, and therefore you've got to change policy. And I think that's what Mr Hockey hasn't realised in the sense that you know, there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. It might be politically difficult, but economically you should change your mind when circumstances change.
basically uh, the, the basic economic lesson that you learn in high school is, uh, uh, you know, when an economy is slowing down, when unemployment's going up, it's not a time to make cuts and focus on uh, austerity. You've hit the nail on the head. And in fact, this is a lesson from uh, some of the European countries in the Eurozone over the last five or six years, that we have a look back in hindsight. It was apparent at the time, but even in hindsight, you look back at some of the budget austerity measures that were imposed on Ireland, Greece, Spain, and to some extent Italy, and you look at what happened to their economies. They were imposing government spending cuts, tax hikes, when the economy was already weak. And when you consider that government demand is about a quarter of the economy, and you've got a quarter of the economy going backwards because of fiscal austerity, you compound the problem. It's a similar thing that's happening here in Australia right now, that running a slightly bigger budget deficit would be no bad thing if you directed that extra funding, if you like, towards areas where you're going to get some economic growth, job creation. And that's where it comes back to things like infrastructure spending or allowing for accelerated depreciation for capital expenditure for businesses and something like that. There are things that can be done. They're put in with a sunset clause of 12 months, so they're not there forever. Um, but you get, you get that temporary boost in activity just to get your economy growing. Sure, you have a slightly wider budget deficit, but the benefit of that, of course, is, uh, is a stronger economy. Which is what you would have hoped from my EFO, which wasn't there. Which is what I would have hoped. The, the, the economic forecasts, if anything, while well, there were yeah, quite a lot of changes, if anything, they were, they were all lowered. They were all weaker. Most of the components on nominal GDP, on unemployment rate, on wages growth, were all revised down. And... Nothing was done about it. You know, Mr Hockey had those forecasts probably a couple of weeks ago and he could have said, gee, I don't like this economic outlook. I'm going to do something to change it. And alas, all he did was just let it go through to the keeper. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time and have a great Christmas. And Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and everyone too. Cheers. Well, Stephen wasn't all that happy with uh, Mr. Hockey, was he, Leon? No, no. As he says, you know, <laughs> uh, hockey isn't, this, this is not a statement about growth or anything like that. No, there's no incentives in there at all. It's all about cut, cut, cut. And how do you stimulate an economy by throwing people out of work? Well, yes, yes. You know, the big conundrum. So anyway, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, first of all, China could actually see growth slow to 7.1%. That's down from about 7.4% this year. That's according to researchers from the nation's central bank. And the estimates were made in a working paper published on the website of the People's Bank of China. And it was described as not reflecting the official views of the central bank, although its authors included Ma Jun, who's the bank's chief economist. Now, Gary... As you know, China's economy has been hit by a prolonged property market slump, which has had a substantial impact on construction and demand for key materials like steel and cement. And global demand is making for a slow and uneven recovery. Um, the 7.1% 7, 7 figure, some people are sort of saying, well, maybe it's a bit below that. Well, maybe. Well, all the numbers coming in this week, uh, China's manufacturing contracted for the first time in seven months in December, according to HSBC, raising questions over growth prospects for the world's second biggest economy. And HSBC's final reading of China's Purchasing Managers Index, uh, which tracks manufacturing activities in factories and workshops, fell to 49.5 this month. That's below 50. Yep. Which uh, above 50 signals expansion, below 50 at 49.5 signals contraction. It's contracting, yeah. And also OPEC's most influential producers are willing to allow oil prices to fall to $40 a barrel before talking about whether the cartel should hold emergency meetings to discuss cutting output. It's a very interesting scenario at the moment. I mean, Russia, which is one of the biggest oil producers in the world, has got a terrible problem with the ruble 
falling apart. That's right. And uh, the ruble's falling apart and Russia is completely dependent on oil. And so Russia's economy and uh, this week the central bank in Russia raised their interest rates to 17%. That's up from 10.5%. And that is diabolical and of course the ruble being hit so hard sent the australian dollar below 82 cents this week yeah, 81.7 it hit yeah it's very the the middle eastern oil producer very interesting and i think they're looking at american shale oil production because that is almost bigger than theirs well yes yes well anyway brent crude uh closed last week at a new five and a half low of under 62 dollars a barrel and to australia and um joe hockey present the maifo or the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook statement and it showed that the australia's federal deficit will blow out to 40 billion dollars in 2014-15 because of declining company tax collections and a deteriorating iron ore price and the much awaited document revealed the federal deficit for 2014 is going to be 40.4 billion before narrowing to 31.2 billion in 2015-16 now the may budget released by the abbott government forecasts a deficit of 29.8 billion not $40.4 billion, Gary, so it's way over that. Well, it's almost double, isn't it? That's right. There's no budget surplus forecast in the forward projections with a deficit of $20.8 billion tipped in 2016-17, narrowing to uh, $11.5 billion in 2017-18. And the report blames two factors for the $43.7 billion deterioration in the budget over the four-year estimates, and they're saying the impact of the economy on tax receipts and payments and the Senate's handling of May budget measures, and it says a 30% collapse in the iron ore price and weaker than expected wage growth has resulted in tax receipts being revised down by 31.6 billion and uh, it's estimated iron ore to be at $60 a ton over the next two years compared to a spot price of $95 in the May budget. It's a huge whack, isn't it? That's right. And they're saying uh, that delays in passing legislation negotiations with the Senate have cost the budget more than $10.6 billion over the forward estimates. And they're saying unemployment is going to reach a new 12-year high of 6.5% in 2014-15. They're saying it's going to remain at 6.5%. That's the highest level since June 2002. Although uh, they're saying in 2015-16 it will decline to about 6% and 5.7.5% in the following two financial years. And that means... Uh, economists saying Treasury's high unemployment forecast mean the number of unemployment will, unemployed will swell by thousands more than expected next year. And younger workers will carry most of the burden, Gary. Yeah, and that creates a huge social problem, particularly in the western sides of Sydney and Melbourne. And uh, it's a bit of a worry, you know. Um, I think the, the forecasts are a bit optimistic. That's right. Well, the budget had actually forecast unemployment peaking at 6.25, and we're over that now. And uh, 6.5%, and it's going to be more. Uh, at the same time, though, Treasurer Joe Hockey's promise that 2015 will be a better year for the Australian economy. He said uh, lower energy prices, a weaker Australian dollar, and interest rates at historic lows would continue to facilitate gains. And new trade deals with Korea, Japan, and China are also expected to deliver broader and deeper market access, especially for small business. And he said a good part start to be made on repairing the budget. And he said the budget would be back in surplus by the end of a decade on that day, on that basis at the start of the coalition's third term in office. If they make that. Well, look, it's a far cry from Hockey's pledge after Labor's 2012 budget that he said, based on the numbers presented last Tuesday night, we will achieve a surplus in our first year in office and we will achieve a surplus for every year of our first term. That was Those were Joe Hockey's words. 
It wasn't prophecy, was it? Like Wayne Swan before him, Joe Hockey's likely to leave the Treasurer's office without having delivered a surplus. But more important things are at stake. Like all treasures, he's determined not to be the one who pushes the economy into recession, which is why he'll let the deficit blow out by $10 billion a year from now. And he's going to pick up the pieces later. Well, and I think that's the only reasonable thing to do. You've got to somehow avoid stultifying the economy. So he's waiting for a real pickup in the economy rather than a Treasury assumption. Now, the OECD, Gary, came out with a report this week saying the goods and services tax, the GST, should be raised between 15 and 18 percent. And it's warning Australia's fallen behind other advanced economies in lowering the tax burden on household incomes and businesses. And it's calling on the government to overhaul the tax system and questions the generosity of Tony Abbott's paid parental leave system, cautions plans to withhold unemployment benefits for younger people. He say that's uncharted territory. Now, the Paris-based OECD made 30 recommendations on fixing the budget and spurring economic growth. They're saying restore surplus, create a stabilisation fund, warehouse revenue from future resources booms, which you've never done before, Gary. We never saved any of that money. Making state revenues more stable by imposing land tax on the family home. And that's going to be politically political dynamite, Gary. Yeah, absolutely. Removing overlapping state and federal bureaucracies and using road and, and using road user charging. So putting tolls on roads to tackle environmental challenges. None of it's particularly uh, politically nice, is it? No, no. It would be a very brave government that does any of this. At the same time, Gary, uh, three surveys this week showed that consumers are becoming more pessimistic heading into Christmas with weak September quarter economic figures growth not helping their mood. The Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index now expects GDP to grow by 2.7%. That's uh, lower than the previous forecast of 3.2%. Consumer confidence fell 0.2% last week to its lowest level in five months, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. New data points have fallen consumer confidence in the Australian economy with almost a third of Australians rating it as poor. That's up from 25% in September. And the quarterly Choice Consumer Pulse report, which came back on the back of um, all the other reports, showed consumer confidence is at a three-year low. And the survey showed 71% of Australians cut spending on entertaining in the past 12 months. 67% had cut spending on clothing. Cuts to spending for holidays had increased from 58% to 66%. And anxiety over university fees was at 87%. Yeah, yeah, it's a worry. And and you're looking at uh, the RBA sort of talking about a 74 cent US dollar, uh, which is going to mean that probably be good for Australian tourism, but overseas and airlines are going to hurt. Now, at the same time, sales of new motor cars, and this is consistent with consumer in, uh, sentiment, sales of new ca- cars have fallen in November, according to data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. New car sales decreased a seasonally adjusted 0.6% to 91869 in a month. On the other side of coin, uh, Telstra and MBN have sold a new deal underpinning the National Broadband Network. And the Telco preserved the $11 billion value stipulated in the original deal. So Telstra gets the money and the box, Gary. Yep, they're, uh, they're doing very well. Under the terms of the deal, MBN will progressively take possession of Telstra's copper and HFC networks. And importantly, MBN not only takes ownership of the infrastructure, it assumes the responsibility of the operations and maintenance of the copper and HFC assets. And Telstra gets $11 billion out of it. Yeah, good for Telstra. Um a problem possibly for the government because the NBN is going to have to look at replacing a lot of that copper over time, and that's expensive. Well, they'll have to call Telstra in to do that. 
Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And and the final bit of news, Gary, is that uh, supermarket giant Coles is facing a penalty of up to $10 million after it was accused of using its enormous market power to bully its suppliers. And Coles supplies about 30%, 35% of a nation's grocery market, admitted to unconscionable conduct with a number of suppliers in late 2010-11, which contravened consumer laws. And the ACCCC took legal action against Coles this year, with a watchdog accusing the supermarket chain of unconscionable conduct over the way it sought rebates from five suppliers and alleged Coles had engaged in claims for various payments including payments for purported profit gaps, waste and markdowns and late and short deliveries and suppliers risk being sidelined if they didn't promptly meet Coles' demands. Coles pretty good at holding guns to heads I guess. So now they're going to face a fine of $10 million and what's more, Woolworths is under scrutiny too over allegations it did the same thing and pressured suppliers to spend millions of dollars in backing its latest discount battle with rivals and and the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has been called upon to determine if it flouted any competition laws. Interesting to know what the ACCC will do. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to probably breaking up Coles and Woolies somehow. Well, let's watch that space. It's going to be very interesting. Indeed it is. So, and that's it for this year. That's right. That's it for 2015. We'll be back in the first week of February, bringing you all the news in Talking Business. We look forward to that. In the meantime, we're wishing you all a great Christmas. Very Merry Christmas. And a happy, healthy and successful 2015. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. Take care and have a great Christmas.